It's 7.09am, June 20, 1994, Dunedin, New Zealand. 22-year-old David Bain calls emergency services triple one. Clearly distressed, he tells the operator, they're all dead, they're all dead. Police and ambulance arrive 20 minutes later to a grisly scene. David's mother, father, two sisters and brother are all shot dead. Four days later, David would be charged with their murder. David says it was his father and that he didn't do it. The case will split a nation. Did he do it or didn't he? Murder or murder-suicide? Did police screw up the investigation? So grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is your host Cambo and you're listening to True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. All right, let's have a little background on the Bain family first. Robin Bain and Margaret Cullen were married in Dunedin, New Zealand, 1969. They had four children, David in 1972, then Arawa in 1974, Laniette in 1976, and Stephen in 1980. The family moved to Papua New Guinea in 1974, where Robin worked as a missionary teacher. They lived there for about 14 years before returning to Dunedin. The family lived in a rundown old house at Anderson Bay, Dunedin. Robin and Margaret's marriage had broken down at this stage and Robin was spending three nights a week living in the schoolhouse where he worked, about 50 kilometres away, and the rest of the time in a caravan in the backyard. David was studying music at Otago University and had a paper run. Arawa was attending a teacher's training college. Laniette had a part-time job and lived away from the residence, and Stephen was at high school. Although Laniette didn't live in the home, she'd been summoned for a family meeting by David the night before. You see, David had become the de facto head of the family since his parents were estranged from each other. Laniette had told friends that she was scared of David and worried about the family meeting he had called. But she knew he would drag her there if she didn't attend. Now let's go to the events of the morning of June 20, 1994. We'll start with the triple one emergency call made by David. So police arrive and find David's parents, two sisters and brother, shot dead in various rooms of the house. 
David's father, Robin, was lying on his side with a gunshot wound just above and to the left of his eye. There was a 22 caliber rifle lying next to him and a magazines of bullets on the floor and it was standing up on its side. In the next room, Margaret Bain is found dead on her bed with bloody footprints leading to the room opposite where Laniette would be found dead on her bed. Stephen would be found dead in his room and it looked like there may have been a struggle as there was blood everywhere and evidence that he was partially strangled. Arrowa would be found dead on a lower ground floor bedroom next to the laundry. So initially the cops thought it was a murder-suicide. Roman had killed his wife and children and then turned the gun on himself. In an alcove off from the room where David's father was found, there was a little computer room. It was David's computer, but the rest of the house were able to use it as well. There was a message on the computer which read, Sorry, you are the only one who deserved to stay. Now, Dunedin is New Zealand's second largest city by size, but it's 90% rural, with a population at the time of just over 100,000 people. So when police get five members of a family shot dead, it's not an everyday thing. So they interviewed David about what went on. Bain told police he returned from his morning paper run at around 6.43am. He entered the house via the front door without turning on the lights and dropped his paper run bag and took off his shoes in his bedroom. He then went downstairs to the bathroom where he washed his hands which were covered with black newsprint. He then did a load of washing, including the sweatshirt worn on his paper run over the last week. David then went back upstairs to his bedroom and turned on the light. He noticed bullets and the trigger lock of his rifle on the floor. He then found his mother dead in her room, heard Laniette gurgling and found his father dead in the lounge room. At 7.09am, he rang the emergency number as I played before. Now, the Bain house was a real mess and it was stinky. There was stuff everywhere. Not a full-on hoarding house like you see on those reality TV shows, but more like a place that hadn't been looked after very well or regularly cleaned. It was in a state of disrepair and the local council had concerns about its safety. Even so, the police had to try and gather evidence the best they could. Eventually, after four days... They charged David Bain with the murder of the five members of his family. Now, there's a lot of evidence that points to David being the perpetrator. Even though the father, Robin, was found in a position with the rifle beside him, his fingerprints weren't found on the rifle at all. In fact, the only fingerprints found on the rifle were bloody fingerprints belonging to David. Robin wasn't wearing gloves, so why aren't his fingerprints on the rifle? Also, there was a 10-round magazine next to his hand. It was upright on its side, so if it had fallen there, it should have fallen flat. It looked like it had been staged. Curiously, it was next to Robin's hand, which showed marks on his fingers, which indicated that he had loaded the magazine with bullets. Now, were those markings put there just after he was shot and the magazine placed next to his hand to try and implicate Robin as the murderer? 
David testified that he was the only one who knew where the trigger lock keys were for the rifle and the trigger lock was found in his room. So how could his father use the rifle to shoot all the family members present at the time and then shoot himself? Now bloody gloves were found in Stephen's room that belonged to David. The defence would argue that Robin shot the four members of his family, then he showered, changed clothes and then shot himself. This, they said, accounted for the fact that no one else's blood was found on his clothes or body and explained the bloody sock prints in the hallway. The defence argued that he showered and changed into clean clothes to impress God after he went to heaven. Now, this is a bit of a stretch, seeing how he's just murdered his family and committed suicide. So there was the bloody palm prints of David's found on the washing powder box, the washing machine and on the doorway in Stephen's room. David told police he didn't notice the blood on the clothes when he put them in the washing machine. That sounds a bit weird. I'm sure he would have noticed if the clothes were soaked in blood. As to the washing itself, the washing cycle had completed when police got there at around 7.35am and it was determined that the washing cycle time for this washing machine was about one hour. As David testifies that he indeed did do the washing and that he arrived home at around 6.43am, if you add a few minutes to get the washing ready, say 6.50am, then the washing should have been still going when police arrived. This points to David being in the house much earlier than he says. In fact, it may even indicate that he murdered his brother, two sisters and his mother first, then washed his clothes, went on his normal paper run and on return he waited for his father to come into the house and then shoot him. You see, every day when his father stayed at the house, he would wake from his alarm at 6.30am, get the newspaper from the front yard, go into the house to pray and then have breakfast. David knew this happened like clockwork and this gave him the opportunity to kill the members of the house earlier, then go do his paper run, return and wait for his father to come into the house. It is what the prosecution called the 4 plus 1 theory. Kill 4, go on his paper run to establish an alibi, come back and shoot the 5th. Now, on his alibi, two witnesses gave evidence at the trial to say that David delivered the papers 10 minutes early that morning. Another witness, Kathleen Mitchell, said David took unusual measures to ensure that she noticed him on the paper round, in particular opening a gate to her property. She told police he'd never done this before and there was no need for him to do this. The circumstances that morning was unusual and since that day I've often thought about it. Also, David told two school friends that he could rape this girl he had his eye on and get away with it by using his paper round as an alibi. Detectives failed to preserve some of the evidence, such as bagging Robin and David's hands to test for gunpowder residue. They are tested hours later, but experts agree that the residue can become undetectable if not preserved correctly and tested as soon as possible. David had already admitted to cleaning up when he got home, so it would have been essential for them to preserve at least Robin's hands. 
Now, Robin had brought in the paper as he usually did each day. Now, why would you do this if you were going to kill all your family? And the fact that he did do this indicates that he wasn't in the house killing his family while David was on his paper run. I mean, would you go and kill all your family, have a break, go get the newspaper, not read it, and then kill yourself? Come on. In regards to the rifle and the 10-round magazine found on the floor, the rifle had a 5-round magazine loaded into it. The 10-round magazine was slightly faulty in the way that for every round shot, a live round could get ejected at the same time. There was an empty shell and a live round found in the room where Robin was found, indicating that he was shot when the 10-round magazine was loaded into the rifle. As the 5-round magazine was in the rifle when found, Robin couldn't have shot himself with it. In fact, the location of the ejected shell that killed Robin indicated that the position of the shooter was from behind a curtain that partitioned the computer room off from the main room. There's so much debate on this subject online, so please Google if you want a lot more in-depth information on this part of the evidence. So before the trial got underway, in fact only three weeks after the murders, at the request of the Bain Family Trust and David as well, the house was burnt down by firefighters. It was claimed they did it as a humanitarian exercise and that someone else may have done it anyway. Problem is, any re-examination of the crime scene was now impossible and police didn't get the opportunity to preserve evidence such as the bloody footprints in the carpet. So it's May 1995 and the trial gets underway. The prosecution's case would be that David got up at around 5am got his rifle, unlocked the trigger lock and went about killing his family. They were not sure exactly what order he did it, but they believed that there was a struggle between him and his brother Stephen which caused his glasses to become damaged, losing the lens and it also caused the bruising on his face. This is also where most of the blood on the clothes he washed came from. David then put his blood-stained clothes in the washing machine and went on his normal paper run, albeit earlier than usual. This got him home at around 6.45am, where he went to the computer room with the rifle, typed the message, sorry, you were the only one who deserved to stay, on the computer, and waited for his father to come into the room. His father left the caravan, grabbed the newspaper, and entered the room where David was waiting for him. David shot him in the head, staged the scene to make it look like a suicide, noticed he had some blood on his shirt, ran downstairs and then tried to rinse it out. He then placed it in the washing machine with the other wash and then called the emergency services. Police arrived to find him curled up in a ball screaming, they're all dead, they're all dead. They would show that it was impossible to use the rifle which had a long suppressor attached to kill yourself. However, in later trials, the defence would show a very awkward way in which it was possible. Prosecutors also told the jury that Robin had no injuries on his body, which would have been sustained during the struggle when Stephen was killed. Also, when David was asked about how the injuries happened to his face and body, he had no answer. Best to say nothing than say something and have it proved a lie. 
I've already told you David's version of the events, where he goes on his normal paper run to come home, do some washing, and find his family dead. He then calls emergency services. So, on 29th of May 1995, after a three-week trial, David Bain was convicted by the jury on five counts of murder. On the 21st of June 1995, he was sentenced to life imprisonment with a 16-year non-parole period. Bain still maintained his innocence and built up quite a few supporters. They campaigned to have his case reheard. In 1995, an initial appeal was dismissed. He also appealed to the Privy Council in 1996. Now, the Privy Council is based in London and it is used as the ultimate final appeal above the Supreme Court. Most Commonwealth nations have effectively blocked this avenue of appeal, but at the time, it was an option. However, they declined to hear his appeal. There was an investigation by the Police Complaints Authority, and their report supported the police. Bain petitioned the Governor-General for a pardon, and in 1998-2000, to an inquiry was held which found that there was no miscarriage of justice. The Minister of Justice advised the Governor-General to seek the Court of Appeal's advice on several pieces of evidence. They did this and advised they should reconsider the case, in which they did, but again dismissed the appeal. Bain again goes to the Privy Council, and this time they agree to hear his case. So this Bain character and his supporters just don't give up. The hearing lasted for five days in March 2007, and in May they quashed Bain's murder convictions. They reckon because a substantial miscarriage of justice has actually occurred, while noting nothing in this judgment should influence the verdict in any way. Well, there you go. Life pro tip, never give up. So these Englishmen tell the Kiwis that they need a retrial, so he gets one. They focused on nine key points. They found that Robin Bain's mental state at the time was quite seriously disturbed, as he had hit a kid at the school he taught at and had published brutal and sadistic children's stories in the school's newsletter, one of which involved the serial murder of members of his family. Also, they found Robin did have motive, as he believed Laniette was about to expose him for an incestuous relationship they had, and that this evidence had been ruled inadmissible during David's trial. This evidence had been backed up by friends of Laniette. Also, the bloody sock prints evidence came into question, whether or not the size of the footprints could be from David or Robin. At trial, they were determined to be David's, but the Privy Council ruled there was still doubt on who made the footprints. There were doubts raised over what time David returned home from his paper run. There were doubts raised over the glasses evidence. Remember, they were David's mother's glasses, but David had been seen wearing them while waiting to get his fixed only days before. Also, the finding of the lens in Stephen's room was reported by the police to be found in the open and had been dislodged during the struggle between David and Stephen. But in fact, it had been found under a skate helmet, the lens covered in dust, which put in doubt the David-Stephen struggle. It was also assumed 
the bloody fingerprints on the rifle were David's and in human blood. However, a test on the blood where the fingerprints were did not reveal human DNA. It could have been rabbit or possum blood. When David told his story, he told how he heard gurgling noises from Laniot's room. Prosecutors told the jury that only the murderer could have heard that. The Privy Council concluded that it was not that clear-cut. The Privy Council also criticised the Court of Appeal in deciding on new evidence, as that was not up to them, but up to a jury, and that they had stepped outside their role in the matter. So in May 2007, Bain was released on bail, even though the Privy Council had recommended he stay in custody. A retrial was ordered for February 2009 in Christchurch rather than Dunedin. There was toing and froing on whether there should be a stay in proceedings, what evidence was allowed, the fact that several witnesses were now dead, and all the usual lawyer stuff that goes on in most high-profile cases. Bain's lawyer did win an appeal over certain new evidence being presented at the trial. One major piece of evidence that was ruled inadmissible and was not presented to the jury was part of the emergency services call. This was suppressed until after the trial. I will play it later, and it may or may not have been damning evidence. So his trial gets underway in March of 2009. David has split the nation as to whether he is guilty or innocent. It is the biggest trial in New Zealand's history. It is a media frenzy as the case runs its course for three months with the prosecution calling 130 witnesses to the defence's 54. The Crown laid out a strong but largely circumstantial case that David could be the only one who could have killed the five members of his family and that the murder-suicide theory of the defence was implausible. That David had struggled in killing his brother Stephen and the injuries to his body and face are evidence to this. The trigger lock for his gun was found in his room and no one else knew where the key for it was located. The washing in the laundry indicated that he tried to destroy evidence. He had told friends previously that he could use his paper run as an alibi to commit crimes. He had started his run early that day and made sure his customers saw him to build his alibi. The defence argued that David had no motive to kill his family and that Robin had done it to conceal his incestuous relationship with his daughter. They argued that the investigation was flawed and that they didn't really investigate Robin's background and focus solely on David. Evidence had been lost, destroyed or never collected and that evidence under Robin's fingernails had never been collected. So after closing comments from the prosecution and defence, the jury retired. The following week, after hours of deliberation, the jury asked the judge two questions the following morning. What are the rules of reasonable doubt? And can you please clarify your statement? It must be David to the exclusion of Robin. The judge replied, in part that they must be sure the accused was guilty after careful consideration of all the evidence and that the Crown case had excluded Robin as the killer. He said that reasonable doubt was an honest and reasonable uncertainty about guilt. At 4.45pm on the afternoon of June 5, 2009, 
with the whole of New Zealand watching, with the world media in attendance to find out was he guilty or not guilty, the jury gave their verdict. The court was silent. Guilters and David's supporters were all holding their breath. Even people who didn't give a shit were watching in fascination for the verdict. Finally, when the judge asked the head juror if David Bain was guilty or not guilty of the murder of his five family members, the reply was, not guilty. Supporters cheered and the prosecution looked despondent. Fights and arguments broke out all over New Zealand over whether or not the jury got it right. After spending 13 years of a life sentence with a non-parole period of 16 years, David Bain was now a free man. So after all the controversy from the day the emergency services call was made up to the final verdict, you would think that justice had been done. However, as David walked from the courtroom out to the waiting media, one jury member hugged David and another shook his hand. Later that night, both these jury members would be seen attending David's release party. Now rumours were that these jury members were actually David Bain's supporters. Journalist Martin Van Bainen noticed that the two jurors spent the last three weeks of the trial giggling and writing messages to each other. Now you would think David would be able to get compensation for the 13 years he spent in prison. Without going into too much detail on why he couldn't get it, basically it's not enough to be found not guilty. You have to show you were more likely innocent than not. David Bain has since asked for all evidence, including the rifle that killed his whole family, to be returned to him. So we have this guy that's been found guilty of murdering his family. He serves 13 years in prison before being found not guilty. He originally had a non-parole period of 16 years, and if he had shown remorse and admitted guilt, he probably would have only served that term anyway. He's been denied compensation, and there is the stigma attached to him over the initial conviction. Plus, most people still think he's guilty. Must be hard to get around. Anyway, after a three-month overseas holiday paid for by his supporters, he ended up back in New Zealand and soon broke. He eventually got a job at an engineering firm and got married. He now has his own kid. So true crime islanders, guilty or innocent. There's so much in-depth information on this case on the internet. Ah, before I forget, remember that bit of evidence I told you about that was to be suppressed until after the trial? You want to listen to it? Okay, here it is. I'll play it twice. If you're unsure in what it says, rewind and listen again. It is from David's emergency call way back on June 20, 1994. Here it is. So what do you think it says? I shot the prick. So that's another episode of True Crime Island. I need to thank a few people for their iTunes reviews. Jezpan1973, Libidi and Joy987. Plus three others that gave star ratings only that I can't seem to see their names. Thanks to Christy from Canadian True Crime Podcast, which is a podcast you need to listen to. Also Jordan Lemon, 
that had kept me awake one morning asking why I didn't have an Instagram account. And then I had to stay awake to create one. Thanks for the push. To all the guys at the Facebook group, the podcast we we listen to, for their support and kind words. To Ali, Millie and Nancy, you know who you are and thank you. And to all my listeners, thank you for taking time to listen and to become true crime islanders. So I'm now on Instagram. Each episode I will upload a couple of pics relevant to the topic. I'm uh, at True Crime Island. Or there's a link on the homepage of truecrimeisland.com. If you'd like to download, you can do it from the episode page and there are now links to Stitcher as well as iTunes on the website. Leave a review if you like. Send me a message via Facebook or email cambo at truecrimeisland.com and let me know what you think or if you have any requests. Remember, don't forget to delete your browser history. This is your host Cambo and this has been True Crime Island, another true crime podcast.